Good morning, Redeemer. You know, last time I spoke here, I was sick. I had Giardia, remember? Never has a congregation so wondered what would come forth from the preacher's lips, especially those on the first row. Um, I feel a lot better. (laughs) I feel great. It's good to be together. It's a privilege. We're walking through the book of Mark, and uh, we're in chapter 14. It's a long long chapter. I have a very short section in there, just the verses 12 through 26. Let me me read them for us. Like I say, it's a short passage, but then we're going to walk through it because it's very tightly uh, connected. Verse 12. And on the first day of the unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will, you, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go to the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him and to one another, Is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Well, there's two parts to the sermon this morning. The first part will look mostly at the sovereign rescue plan of God. And in part two, more briefly, we'll look at communion and the new covenant. This this month marks a special day for me and Leanne. It was uh, was 10 years ago, on the 12th month, uh, December, that we arrived in Dubai. And life here has been wonderful. It's a great privilege, full of surprises. Few of the things that we had planned actually happened the way we thought they would. Many of the unforeseen things have been some of the greatest blessings, like the start of Redeemer Church. Plans are funny that way, aren't they? As you make your plans, how's your plan going? How, How is your plan doing? Are things going according to plan? Are they going the way they thought they would, you thought they would? The map you made for your life five years ago, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, is it happening? 
You know, if you're anything like me, you might have a chuckle about the, the difference between what you planned 15 years ago about your life and what's actually transpired, what you're actually doing. You long ago left plan A, right? You're, you, you've long ago left plan B. You're not even in plan C. You're probably in G or F or E or, you know, you're in some other plan, right? That's where I am. Fact is that we can barely plan out our day, much less 10 years, 15 years down the road. And part of that is just life in the Middle East, right? (laughs) And part of it is just life. Just that's the way it goes. Unfortunately, there's this tendency in our hearts to put that on God. To think that that's the way God is. That for the most part, God's in control. He's usually on plan A. But every now and then, there's, things don't go according to plan He's on plan B, maybe plan C. That there's a, a couple square centimeters in the universe that God's not really in charge of. And, and if we're honest, sometimes our thinking is that those square centimeters are in our own lives. Right? He's got control for most everyone else, but in my future, in my marriage, with my kids, my work, my finances, that reoccurring sin, that problem in a relationship, that evil which has befallen me, somehow that's slipped out from under the Lordship of Christ. That's slipped out of God's care. I believe the reason we feel that way is what Oswald Chambers said that we are too short-sighted to see what God is aiming for God's aim is for a target is for a mark over the horizon we can't see it that's why God calls us to trust him it's a lot like our kids, right? You know, those of us who have children, you, you, know, you know this feeling. Because they can't see what we're shooting for, it appears to them that we're out of control. Right? You, you know that feeling when your kid tells you, uh, tries to help you out about how things are going or what you need to know. My, my youngest son, Isaac, who's a, he's a, a grown young man right now, but when he was, when he was pint-sized, like four or five, he was, he was a closet warrior. He worried about everything. It was clear that his parents didn't know what they were doing. And I can remember times when he would sit in the back in his little car seat in the back of the car, and we'd be driving down the road, or and usually would be driving him around, or getting his brothers, and uh, he, would, he would be thinking about things, right? And then he'd pipe up with this little question, Mom, have you ever been kidnapped? <laughs> so you're like, Isaac, <laughs> you know, what? No, I've never been kidnapped. Isaac, what are you thinking about that for? Oh, I don't know, just thinking. <laughs> Leanne and Isaac were at a fast food restaurant. They're in line to get their happy meal. And Leanne notices on the bills... Uh, the cash that she's getting ready to pay for uh, at the fast food restaurant that someone had scribbled on one of the bills. This is a teaching moment. Isaac, look, someone has written on, on the money. And Isaac said, well, what's wrong with that? He's like four or five. She says, well, it's against the law to write on money. You shouldn't ever write on money. He goes, okay. You know, he's, all right. 
They get up to the counter. Happy Meal comes out. Isaac's looking up at the counter. Leanne hands the bills over. They take the Happy Meal, walk away. And Isaac goes, oh, I'm so glad they didn't arrest you. <laughs> you know, he's imagining the McDonald's worker reaching over the counter and slapping handcuffs on his mother. What was a teaching moment for Leanne, of course, was missed by Isaac. He, just, he couldn't see what she was shooting for. He couldn't see beyond his fear. To Isaac, his mother seemed oblivious to what was really important at hand. And you know, in, in many ways, it reminds me of the disciples in this story. Their questions of Jesus. I suspect that when they are asking questions, when the disciples are asking questions of Jesus about the Passover meal, here in verse 12, it's because they think Jesus is slipping on the job. He's not got things in order. They need to help him out. Look, it's the day of Passover. We better get, get on with the meal, right? Let's, let's make this meal. It hadn't been prepared. Something needs to be done. Jesus is obviously, according to the disciples, unaware of the real problem of the day. They don't see him for who he is, do they? Jesus is on the eve of his death. The disciples want to make sure that he's thinking about supper. Clearly, miraculously, Jesus has the meal under control in verses 13 through 16. Everything is ready. The meal is set. The room reserved. The bigger meal, the bigger miracle is that the meal had been planned thousands of years before this. God has ordered this dinner thousands of years before. Can you imagine calling up the restaurant? Uh, I'd like to make reservations. Uh, yes, sir, when, when would you like to attend our restaurant? Uh, 3,000 years from now, about 8 o'clock. Right away, sir. Click, right? It's astounding Thousands of years before this meal, it had been planned. The Passover meal, instituted in Exodus, pointed to this very weekend in the life of Jesus. It is both a meal of remembrance of what, what God did to deliver his people out of Egypt. And a pointer, a mark, on how Jesus would deliver the world from its sin. Melvin read for us the passage passage about the Passover story. Don't, Don't miss these highlights about that passage. The Lord promises to rescue his people from cruel bondage in Egypt. The death angel is coming. The final judgment. You must be known to God to escape his wrath. Sacrifice is required. A blood sacrifice of an innocent, spotless lamb. You have to have the faith to do what he requires. That is, cover your doorpost with the blood of the Lamb. Those who don't believe, those who think that's stupid, will face judgment. Those not marked with the blood. And then there's this promise to take them out of bondage in Egypt into the promised land. Now imagine, Jesus sits with his disciples at the Passover meal, a meal that has been celebrated for millenniums. And he understands the meaning of that meal. He's the one who led those out of bondage so many years before. He instituted Passover. 
And he sees the bigger meaning of the Passover meal. He knows that the Lord promises to deliver people not just from cruel bondage in Egypt, but the cruel bondage of sin. The death angel is coming. But it's not just one-time event in downtown Cairo. Listen, this is the end of all of our lives. To escape this wrath, you must be known by God and you must know God. It's a two-way street. Jesus says you cannot enter into his kingdom unless he knows you. The sacrifice of the lamb is just not a mere lamb. It's not an animal, but the lamb of God. The precious, spotless, firstborn child of God. You have to have faith to do what he says. Not in placing the blood on your doorposts, but by trusting that the shed blood of Jesus covers your life for a ransom to redeem you. Those who do not believe enough to follow him, trusting him with their whole lives, will face judgment. And he promises to deliver us out of bondage, the bondage of sin to a promised land. God has made a plan. It's not dinner plans. It's not a five-year plan. It's not a 500-year plan. A plan enacted from past eternity for a future eternity. And it's operative right now. He is the sovereign Lord. He is in charge. This is one of the most important meals of all human history. And notice that Jesus doesn't just know past history. He knows the future. Look in verses 17 through 21. He knows about his torture, his sacrificial death, the payment for our sin, his resurrection, the very fact that he will once again drink the fruit of the vine in the kingdom of heaven. He knows these things. He knows what is going on right there in verses 17 through 21. He knows that he's going to be betrayed. He knows what's happening. His concerns are far beyond the vision of the disciples. He's shooting for something they cannot see. What about your life? Maybe, maybe those places where God doesn't seem to be quite in control are actually His plan for you. Plan A. You know, I think, I think we all know inherently, those of us who know God, all of us know inherently that Jesus did the sovereign work in our life to bring us to Himself. Now, I, I know sometimes this isn't as clear as some people might make it out. It, it, it's hard to see this sometimes, especially in a world where there's so much talk in the modern world of us choosing God rather than God choosing us. But envision with me, envision with me a conversation with God where we, we stand under the canopy of heaven. We are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, the redeemed. And we stand before the very throne of God. Actually, this is, this is a promised thing. And there comes questions to us. How would we respond? What would we say? So, God says to us, Why are you here? Oh God, you called me. 
I could not stand here were it not a work from you. Your word says in John 5, oh God, that your sheep know your voice and they respond to you. I came to you because I heard your voice. God asks you, did you choose me or did I choose you? Oh no, oh no God, your word says in John 15, 16, I didn't choose you. You you chose me, oh God. God says, was it through your own wisdom and wit that you were convicted of sin? Oh no, Lord. It was through your spirit that I was convicted of sin. He asks us, was it your own faith? Did you conjure up faith so that you might believe in God? Oh no, God, your word says that faith is a gift from you. I couldn't any more generate faith than fly to the moon. You gave it to me. Who put the Holy Spirit in your life? Did I do that or did you do that? No, Lord. You put your Holy Spirit in me. He asks, what what good works did you do to merit this salvation? And we say, oh, nothing, oh God. Your word says, it is not by works, but by your grace. It's not my wit, it's not my work, it's not my background, it's not my paltry efforts to try and do good. Which your word, O Lord, says are as filthy rags. It was your work on the cross, your work alone, that brought my salvation. Did I choose you because you're worthy in some way? No, Lord. Your word says I was still a sinner when you died for me. What is it then, God asks of us, that allows you to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Oh God, you must know me. You must know me by simple faith that you give to me. We demonstrate that by turning from sinful disobedience and following you as the Lord of life. You promised life eternal. You called, you convicted, you gave me faith. You did the work on the cross. You were the one that came in my place. You filled me with the Holy Spirit. Salvation comes from the Lord. That's our cry, right? The cry of the redeemed. He's the sovereign Lord. Don't ever, ever, ever think that things happen to you outside of the plan of God. Even even the wicked things are redeemed by God. Even the evil things are a part of His sovereign plan. Even the one who was to betray Him was chosen. As Jesus says in verse 21, it's been written about him in Psalm 41.9 that the one whom I've eaten with has raised up his heel against me. It's, a, it's an image not just from the Psalms, but from the first chapters of the book of Genesis. This grieves Jesus greatly. I think that's what's on his mind about this supper. Knowing that he's going to be betrayed by one of his own. Certainly not the dinner plans. He's in sorrow about the betrayal. Yet he sees it as God's plan. He trusts in God's judgment. Jesus even said it would have been better if he had not been born. Now, I think just as we know God has worked in our life, right? God is the one that has called us to himself. We know that Judas 
was operating in his own human responsibility. We know that Judas was sinful. That's, that's actually why we don't name our kids Judas, right? At least I don't think anyone here has named their child Judas. Although the prophets were known to name their kids with names that scored prophetic bullseye when the roll was called in school. God is no longer with us for he is no longer in Israel here. You know. We tend not to do that now. Because we recognize, we recognize that Judas operated out of his own human responsibility and sinned. He's a guilty, evil, greedy betrayer. And yet, there's this tension, right? There's this tension we face by holding both to God's sovereign rule, in the one hand, and in the other, human responsibility. I mean, why? Why did Judas pay for fulfilling the role God called him to? It seems, I know what you're thinking, it seems unfair. And I'll tell you, I don't, have, I don't have complete intellectual answers. God's ways are beyond us. There's a mystery. I love what R.C. Sproul says about that. We take comfort that mystery is not synonymous with contradiction. It's not. But it's a mystery. His ways are higher than us. Actually, it points to the fact that God is bigger than us. If you believe in a system that is completely tight, airtight, and everything makes sense, you've probably invented it. But there are three things to remember about the tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Let me, let me tell you three things very quickly. Number one, the world is condemned already. We're under judgment now. Adam and Eve fell in the garden. They passed that sin on. So you and I are like crack babies. It's tragic. It's awful to be born addicted. Right? But it's our nature. It's our condition. It's the way that we are born. We inherit sin. The fact is, if any of us had been Adam and Eve, we would have sinned too. So if God chooses some out of a fallen world, if He reaches in and chooses some, it's an act of grace and mercy, not unfairness. Secondly, those who accept God, those who love Him, those that are entered into his kingdom on the day of judgment know that we owe everything to him. Those that have rejected him in life, those that have pushed him aside, come to judgment knowing that it is fully their responsibility. In fact, Paul says in Philippians that every knee, every tongue will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord, both those who enter into paradise and those who are judged. They're like the thief on the cross who said, we're getting what we deserve justly. Thirdly, and most importantly, we remember the cross. Ultimately, the most important thing to remember about Christian faith is the cross. How God's sovereignty and human responsibility met. God has chosen to redeem evil for good. He's chosen that. As Joseph said to his brothers in the book of Genesis, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. We follow 
a God on a cross. He did not have to do it. He did not have to go to the cross for you and me. He did it because he loves us. If you want to talk about what's unfair, look at what they did to Christ. He was the only innocent one ever to face bad things. The rest of us are not innocent. And he volunteered. The cross is the rescue plan of God. Where his life, as he says in verse 24, was poured out for many. I think I've told you before that I grew up on a small western Kentucky town uh, in the U.S. And in our city there was a huge river that sat right next to our, our city, our village really. And uh, we would often use it as a playground for our uh, boats. My father was a boatsman among many other things. And we had a number of boats. Um, it really wasn't like a lake. We treated it like a lake. The reason it wasn't a lake is because about a mile downstream from our, our city, there was a flood dam where the entire Ohio River would funnel through, especially in springtime. And the sluiceway of that dam, I remember seeing huge trees being thrown up into the air as they went over this dam. The, the, the river was about a mile across at our city. So it was an amazing opportunity. We, we didn't think much about the dam downstream. Every spring, my father and I were a team. He'd trail the boat down to the river. We'd back it in to the river, and I would be at the controls of the boat. I'd gun the engine and back the boat off the trailer. I was young. It was one particularly blustery spring day. It was beautiful warm weather, but gusty and windy, and the current was strong from the spring rains. And I remember backing the boat off the trailer. Dad pulled the boat out, and just foolishly, I decided to take a little swing out into the river. I got about halfway started to make my turn back in, and suddenly the engine died. You know, right? I tried to start it. The battery was dead. I lifted off the cover. I tried to start it by hand. It it wasn't budging. About, About then, I noticed that the wind and the waves were a little stronger than I had I had thought. I was moving swiftly downstream. I looked up. I saw my father on the shore. Now, my father is an orthopedic surgeon. He's an emergency room doctor. And um, he's the kind of guy you want in an emergency. And he was looking rather panicked, which didn't help me. (laughs) He's tripping over roots and rocks as he followed the boat down the current. And he's yelling at me, but I I can't hear him. His words are being swirled away by the wind. Just by way of humility, what he was yelling at me about was Mac throw out the anchor (laughs) there it was that Danforth right on the bow of the ship all I just needed to do was toss it over right but I couldn't see it I was blinded by panic I couldn't hear his instructions because the wind was swirling away his words I about then a buoy bobbed by warning do not go past this point I panicked I couldn't find a paddle. I grabbed a ski. I began beating the water. I could hear the roar of the dam. About then, I also heard kind of a, you know, a bumping on the boat. I didn't know what it was. I looked up. There come two hands, and my dad's head pops over the bow, loops the line over the front cleat, 
and begins towing me back with a smelly fishing boat that he had pirated from shore. (laughs) He just found one, jumped in, and came and saved me. I was saved by my father. Now listen, as par- you know, all parallels break down. He used the tools at hand, simple things. He recognized that the law of the anchor was not going to save me. I was too blinded by panic. I couldn't see it. I, I couldn't hear his voice. The winds were too strong. He had to come get me. He had to come get in my boat. It was his effort. I couldn't get to him. He had to come to me in my boat, my situation. He saved me out of his great love for me. That's the way it is with God. He comes to us in our great love. And listen, if you're feeling that God has somehow, somehow forgotten you, some important event in your life, job, marriage, kids, health, some evil being perpetrated on you, if there's some area where you feel you need to tell God that he's forgotten you, I'm here to tell you he has things under control, including his call to you. Including his call to you. Listen, if you can hear me. You know, there's many people in this congregation right now, they're so distracted they don't hear me. They're worried about lunch, like the disciples. They're blinded like by their fear, like Isaac. The words of God swirl away in the wind like my father's words to me. But if you can hear me, let me say God is speaking to you. He is reaching out his hand to you. Don't put him off. Don't put him off. His rescue plan was in effect in a past eternity for right now, for any who would turn from sin and trust in Christ. Turn to Him now. Well, let's also turn our attention to part two, communion and the new covenant, verses 21 through 25. Now, just to, just to be somewhat repetitious, but to say that Jesus is on the verge of being put before an unjust court. We're talking about hours away. He will face mob violence. He will be tortured by an occupying military. He will be cruelly murdered. He's about to take on the sins of the world. Worse, he's about to face separation from God. He will face the complete wrath of God. Even as he faces those events, out of his great love, he establishes the Passover meal. He is establishing a tradition that will help us be reminded of that very death. So he establishes a meal as a sacrament, the sacrament of communion. Now there are two sacraments for the church, right? I mean, some church traditions have many, many uh, sacraments, but there are two biblical sacraments for the church. One is baptism and one is communion. Baptism symbols are rebirth in Christ. It happens one time. We come to Jesus once. We are dead to ourselves. We're buried with Christ. We're raised again. That's a symbol of what actually happens in our life spiritually. Communion is different. 
It's different than that. It's ongoing in the church. The reason communion is ongoing, of course, is because we're ongoing sinners. We need to humbly, continuously confess our sins. Communion reminds us of our state, our need for the cross of Christ, the blood of Christ. It's our need for forgiveness at the cross. That's the point of communion. So remember these two symbols. One is how we enter into Christ's kingdom in baptism. One is how we are raised with him, baptism. And one is for the believer and how we come into fellowship. The other is ongoing, communion, where we remember his cross. Don't forget them. Now, notice something, especially those of you who come from uh, Orthodox or, or uh, Catholic backgrounds. I, I, I want to point something out, a little technical here, about Jesus offering the bread and, 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 the, and the, the blood. He does this when he is in the body. He says, take my body in the bread. Well, clearly he's in the body. Right? There's no transubstantiation here. There's no magic in the, in the wine and, and the bread. There's nothing special about that beyond a symbol. Now, it is special as a symbol. But he gives it to us as a symbol. It doesn't become his bread and body because he does it while he's in the body. So we, we need to understand there's nothing particularly special about the bread and the wine. It's a symbol of the death of Christ. What is important? Is the condition of our heart as we approach communion. Have just one simple point of application. Be sure to listen to the instruction that Dave gives at communion. They are rich. They are full. And I'm, I know how it is. I do this sometimes myself. Sometimes you're just sitting there and you're, you're getting ready for communion and you've heard it before so you don't think about it, right? Don't do that. Next communion. Think through what Dave says as he goes over the scripture, as he gives the parameters, as he, what we call, fences the table about why we do that. It's excellent instruction. We go over it every time we do communion. Now notice Jesus says in verse 24 that the communion meal is a memorial to the new covenant with God. He's talking about the long-awaited New covenant. A covenant that's a solemn agreement between two peoples. Marriage is a covenant. When, when we're married, we, we covenant one to another to make a lifelong agreement to love, honor, and cherish each other. Right, Adrian? Right, Kaya? <laughs> right, Nissen? Right, Joanna? That's why it's a big deal. It's a big deal, right? That's why we're making a big deal. So the, you know, the wedding shower last night over the parks, that was a lot of fun. Everyone came, all the women came. They had a good time, right? We do that because it's a big deal. They're making this huge, huge covenant. In the Bible, covenants are made between God and man, as God did with Noah, promising, I'll never destroy the earth again with a flood. Or Abraham, I will make you a great nation. Or the big one with Moses, right? The Exodus. The one the Passover meal uh, it talks about. The old covenant. But God promised that one day there would be a new covenant. He promised it in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. Let me, let me read it for you. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall anyone teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. This is what Jesus is talking about at the Passover meal when he talks about the new covenant. The time is now that you will come to God at communion table or in your seat at church or in your bed late at night as you think about God and you bring to Him your sin and He will hear you. This meal that Jesus is at marks both the Exodus Passover and the new covenant where our sins would be Remembered, no more. So you take your sins to Jesus. You confess, you repent. You put your complete faith and trust in Christ. Later, you're stirred up about that sin. You go back to Him. What does He say? What? Funny, I don't remember that sin. That's what it says. It says, I will remember your sin no more. What grace. What mercy. What joy. Take your sins to Christ. If you really want to understand the biblical concepts of Old and New Covenant, you need to study the book, the book of Hebrews and especially chapters 8 and 9. I, I recommend you doing that this week. Look at Hebrews 8 and 9. The the covenant, the new covenant, and the covenant idea has direct bearing on Redeemer. We are a covenant community. It's important to understand that when you become members of Redeemer. We ask you to take a covenant with a community of believers. And, you you know, there's a lot of confusion about church in the world today. You hear people use the word church all the time, and, and it's, just, it's just, oh, it makes me want to jump up and down and holler. I, have you heard of the, the rock band Third Day? I, I love them. I, they're kind of southern rock. It's from, you know, my place in the world. Kind of, they're Christian, Christian band. They're, they're a great band. And I was, listening, I was listening to one of their songs on one of their older albums, and, uh, you know, it, it was a live concert, and, and the lead singer is, is excited. I mean, uh, the people are obviously worshiping God, and there's great fellowship going on. And, and that kind of, you know how in recordings of songs, when it kind of, they start turning down the, the volume, and you can, but you still hear him talking on stage after the song is over. And he, and he says, he rings out, we're having church! Right? <laughs> oh, I wish he hadn't said that. There's so much confusion about this. Listen, church is not merely good fellowship. Now, I I love it when good fellowship happens. I'm all for that. I want it to happen. But that's not church. A Christian rock, rock concert is not church. Church is not a place to just meet your needs. It's not a place to be entertained. Oh, spare us, Lord God, of Bollywood church, right? We, we don't want to come to church and just be entertained. It's not a place to meet people who are like-minded. We don't aim to help you get rich. We are not a counseling service. We're not here to make the world a better place. 
Look, now, some of those things may happen, right? Some of, well, okay, you're probably not going to get rich. <laughs> In fact, if a pastor tells you you're going to get rich by coming to his church, go the other way. The only one getting rich in that church is the pastor. (laughs) No, that's not what it's about. Some things may happen. We may do good in the world. You may find fellowship. Your your hurts may be mended up. We want all that to happen. But it's not what it is about primarily. That's not what church is. Church is a place for true followers of Christ who've been born of His Spirit, washed in His blood, to covenant together in community. To bring God glory by worshiping Him together as Savior, Lord, and hope of the world. We live out the new covenant by our relationships one to another and so prove to the world that it's for His glory. It's about Him. It's about His name. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about God. Now, now, if you're confused about that, you're going to make all kinds of errors in your Christian life. Um, and most of them will be very, very selfish. I just, I just want to point out, we have, a, we have a direct point of application for this in a number of ways in our church. When we say membership in our church, what we, what we aim for is that members are believers, true followers of Christ. That's, what, that's, what, that's all we want. We're not looking for great social status. We're not looking for theologians who have every article of the Westminster Confession nailed down. We're we're not looking for folks who are perfect. (laughs) There'd be none of us here if that was the case, right? No, we we want believers, those who are genuinely coming to come to faith and act like believers, are willing to follow Jesus as, as Lord in what He says. We want believers to commit to each other in covenant to a local body of Christ. There's another direct application besides membership, and that's tonight, members' meeting. Please, please, please don't call it a business meeting. I've heard a couple of people call it a business meeting. It's not a business meeting. It's, it would be like having a family celebration, a family gathering, and calling that a business meeting. No, this is a family gathering. It's a part of our covenant together. It's a time to worship It's a time to to hear family matters that only we talk about in family. You know how that is in your family. There's some things you talk about in the family. That's family, my mom used to say. Okay, I I got it. That's happening tonight. It's really important. That's part of your commitment if you're a member here. You can't say, I love the body, and then not care to the body. You not not show up when the body shows up. Hey, listen, I started off by asking how your plan's going. How's it going? I don't know how your plan's going. But God, he's in charge. He's in control. The rescue plan, the rescue is going exactly according to God's plan. The last verse of this section, verse 26, is they sang a hymn before they left. It was probably a psalm from 113 to 118. Those were the psalms that they sang during Passover. Maybe it was this one, Psalm 117, the shortest psalm. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. If ever there was a congregation that could do that, you can do that. We're all nations. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. For great is His steadfast love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord.
Amen. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we are amazed that you cared for us with such great love to establish communion, to to care for our remembrances of you through this sacrament, knowing that we forget. Though you had great reason to think only about yourself, you thought of us. And we praise you for that. Thank you for your steadfast love. Lord God, we would pray that we would take your covenant seriously, the new covenant. That we would be a covenant community. Father, we pray that we'd be reminded this week particularly of your great sovereign care in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.